2: My own relationship to my own identity is ever in flux in some way, right? So I I still would say I don't have a firm sense of oh, I am this person. So I don't, I don't have that point of view to write from in some sense.
1: From the TED Audio
0: Collective, this is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 18 years, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people
2: about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, A.M. Holmes talks about the politics in her recent novel. Politics is the push and pull of who we are and who we hope to be, I think. And I really felt like something weird was happening in this country.
0: Design is an integral part of the decisions that help shape our lives, especially when it comes to creating great spaces and experiences at home. Even for something as simple as the pots and pans we cook with, design matters. Not a lot of pots and pans have innovative, inspiring design, but Meyer Labs is different. My wife and I can't stop talking about the new Meyer Accent Series six piece cookware set that we've been using. Besides space-saving stackability with universal lids and being easy to clean, its stunning matte black design adds a gorgeous touch to our kitchen. Check them out at meyer.com forward slash design and use the code design for 20% off your order. Try it for yourself so you can experience the true joy of beautiful stackable cookware. America is a divided country. Each side is siloed inside its own media, and hatred and violence are pervasive. But that doesn't stop the imagination from leaping gamely over the divide, which is precisely what A.M. Holmes has done in her latest novel. It's titled The Unfolding, and it's about a white man who sees the 2008 election of America's first Black president as a crisis for his kind. Am Holmes has written 13 extraordinarily original books and often explores uncomfortable situations and controversial characters in her fiction. Her best-selling memoir, The Mistress's Daughter, is about meeting her birth mother when she was in her 30s. Am also works in film and television. She has written an opera libretti and was a writer and producer for several seasons of one of my favorite shows ever, The L Word. Am Holmes, welcome to Design Matters. Debbie, thank you so much for having me on. It's a treat. (laughs) Absolutely thrilled. A.M., is it true that you went to your fourth grade Halloween party dressed as Willie Loman in your father's suit, wearing a skinhead wig and carrying a briefcase? It is true.
2: Um, I did. (laughs) And the only thing I will say to, to sharpen the definition is the skinhead wig was one of those sort of bald man wigs sort of yellow flesh-colored plastic with a Mm. ring of dark hair around the edges. And yeah, I wore my father's suit and carried an old briefcase of his because he never really carried a briefcase. And I was trick-or-treating that way. And so I would say trick-or-treat and have people drop the candy into my briefcase.
0: How did you know about death of a salesman in fourth grade? The
2: home I grew up in was a
0: complicated place.
2: And A child who had lived to be nine years old died six months before I was born and before I was adopted into the family. And I would say there was a heavy sense of grief that just permeated everything always. And so I describe it always to people as though I grew up at the edge of Washington, D.C. in a house that basically had a black cloud over it, like you might see either in a Snoopy cartoon. Mm -hmm. But the vibe in the house was sort of, I would say, sort of death of a salesman, Eugene O'Neill, There was not a lot of lightness. It's very intense and dark.
0: I know you started reading at a very young age. You also loved the collection of travel books for children, written and illustrated by the great Miroslav Sasek. And after checking out his book, This is Venice, 13 times from your school library, the librarian finally (laughs) bought you your own copy, which I believe you still own. What do you love most about this particular book?
2: I love the, I love the whole series. Um, and the weirdest thing is I have still never been to Venice, which is just unconscious. Well, that was my next um, question. <laughs> I know. You know, I think it's that the movie, what is the movie with Donald Sutherland and the kid in the red, the kid gets killed. Oh, yeah. Um, don't look now. Yeah. That scared me so incredibly badly that despite my incredible love for Venice, I was like, I'm sorry, I can never go to Venice. But I would like to conquer that. I think... I love those books because I loved anything that took me into another world and into a world that was vibrant and had possibility. And um, the idea of riding in a boat through streets or, you know, canals just seemed amazing. Um, so, yeah, that was that was my favorite. But I also actually the this is London was a was a close second with the, you know, the palace guard on the front.
0: You were raised in Chevy Chase, Maryland. Your father was an artist. Your mom was a guidance counselor. What kind of art did your dad make? Uh, That's a good question. My father was
2: a painter. When I was a kid growing up, he actually owned and ran a gas station because he had to earn a living. And he was a, a social realist painter. He painted from the time he was about 14 years old until he died at 94. The basement is still filled with all of his artwork because he never would give any away or sell any. And he was thought to be a very talented painter. He had a scholarship to go to painting school at the Phillips Collection. Uh, He also worked there as a guard. And he only, like when I was a much older adult, he said to me, oh, yeah, you know, Matisse used to come in and look at his paintings all the time. I thought, how wild is that? And so he was a social realist, very political in his painting. Um, My mother was a stay-at-home mom when I was little and then went back to school and got a master's degree in counseling, of course, when I was a very difficult to deal with teenager. And so that was an interesting juxtaposition, shall we say.
0: You already mentioned uh, being adopted at birth and coming into a family where your nine-year-old brother had died six months before you were born. And you've written about how for a long time you thought of yourself as a replacement child occupying this space once held for another child. And that had a huge impact on your development as a child, as a girl, and as a writer. Did that sense of being a replacement ever dissipate?
2: No. No, I still have it. I mean, it's it's not just being a replacement. It is, on the one hand, there's a piece of it that is, I would say, a lack of of almost any kind of identity because I don't know, absent that cloak of the replacement child and literally moving into a house and a room and, you know, there being toys that belong to this other person and a sense, too, that, that one had to care for this family. And I would say it's very hard as an infant to know how to fill those shoes and what to do. So that never went away. And I would say still the sense of profound illegitimacy, do I have a right to exist, is with me constantly. And I think on the one hand, if there is any positive to it or upside of it, is it does allow me enormous freedom when it comes to inhabiting the shoes of others. I don't feel wedded to any particular identity so much so that I can't get past myself because I can't even figure out what myself would be. But that said, it's a complex, place to come from, um, and definitely very much on the outside of everything. So working on it still.
0: Yeah, you talk about feeling, in addition to feeling like a replacement, also feeling like an outsider. And that sense of social alienation is really what inspired you to first start writing. How old were you when you wrote your first piece?
2: Well, it's funny, Debbie, only because we're on Zoom, even though we're recording this, I'm going to wheel away and show you something. And this this is only because I'm in I'm in my home office. This is my Ooh. first book, Debbie. Oh so my. what I'm showing you I know, is a velour covered uh, book that we made. It's at in elementary school. This is the mysterious stories of haunted homes hollow. This is still when I used my given name Amy H. It's written an ill by A M Amy H. And so this is this goes back uh, I would say to the early seventies. And so that would be my first book. It's a little disturbing.
0: No, I think it's quite quite remarkable that cover is so groovy. Well, we had to learn how to do proper library binding. That was yes. Aside from what you just showed us, (laughs) what kinds of stories were you writing? Were they macabre? Were they funny? Were they witty? Talk about your style. I think
2: it's funny, when I could look back at these, and I only found this book a few years ago, uh, just by the dedication, which I'll tell you, it's dedicated to my right hand.
0: So Genius.
2: <laughs> um, they are funny. They are already macabre. They are as complex then as I am now, uh, I would say filled with contradiction and oddity and quirky. I also had terrible learning disabilities and had horrible handwriting. And they used to say to me, You'll never write. And they didn't mean, like, you'll never write a book. They meant, like, you'll never write a check. You'll never write anything because no one can read your handwriting. So every afternoon when the other kids, you know, went to play sports or do other things, I had to go to the handwriting tutor or the visual training person. Um, And my entire childhood was basically one form of, of correction or therapy or another, I mean, I couldn't take a test. I had terrible grades. I also think probably some of it is related to adoption. And I think there is a lack of integration that adopted people have. It's a longer story, but if you look at the number of adopted kids who have learning issues or sensory integration issues, I think it's because you're born and they say, okay, you were born Gloria Steinem, but the Schlafly family (laughs) adopted you. So now you're Phyllis Schlafly and good luck with that. And I think there really is biological, cellular knowledge of who we are, and it's very hard without any acknowledgement of that to integrate it and to become a singular person. So I think in some ways, probably some of my learning issues in part came from that.
0: You spent a lot of time at your local public library growing up, and at that time, They had phone books for every city in America. And I understand you would look up names of people whose work interested you, and you wrote to them. Um, You wrote to artists, musicians, movie directors. Um, You didn't write asking for an autograph or a glossy photo. You wrote them really interesting letters. Yeah. First of all, I found it astonishing that you— that, that you could find so many addresses so publicly. Yeah. No, you wrote to Pete Townsend, you wrote to John Sales, and they wrote back. So
2: again, I don't. and I don't know what to make of this, but I wrote to lots of different people. And it was shocking. I literally would go through like the New York City phone book. That was the really hot one. And you'd look and you'd be like, Art Garfunkel. Oh, that's so interesting. That's listed. And I, I had a little black three-ring binder notebook, and I would scrawl out, you know, the person's name and number and their address. And I thought, the truth is, in some ways, I would be equally happy writing letters to strangers, but you don't know who they are. So in some ways, the knownness of the person was only like a kind of vetting. It was, I mean, it was people's work I admired, but it was also that I knew they probably weren't dangerous in some sense, right? So I did. I wrote letters to strangers, lots of letters to strangers. And often, the women strangers I wrote to would write me a very... um, cryptic, short, single-line letter back. Thank you for letters. I I don't, you know, correspond with strangers. I wrote to Rita Mae Brown, and she said something like, you know, thanks for your letter. I hope you find a place to make friends. (laughs) Something like that. I was like, thanks. (laughs) Um, But the men, it was interesting. The, The men happily wrote back, were very engaging. There were any number of people who could have in some ways screwed me up and absolutely didn't. Pete Townsend was a wonderful correspondent, very encouraging you know, you would send me long letters. I mean, we would talk about writing. We would talk about the who. Uh, it was really bad when Keith Moon died. I mean, that was the time period. And then John Sales and I became correspondents for a very, very long time. And I would write him and he would write me back on these, you know, yellow legal pads, just incredibly long letters. Yeah, and it just, it was it was a way of writing myself out of the world I lived in and into another, literally another world. But they weren't, they were not fan-based. It was always like, you know, Here's what happened today. Or like this person's being really mean to me. Or you know whatever.
0: Um, and about writing, have you corresponded with them as an adult? Do they know that you're you? John Sales knows that I'm me, and Pete Townsend may know
2: that I'm me. Rita Mae Brown, I have no idea because you know I can take a hint. But if she um, regrets that letter now, <laughs> I don't know. I have the le- I do have the letter. Yeah, it's funny, but yes, I I I very much wanted to connect with a large, a world just outside of my own and bigger than what I was living in. And I would go, it's funny too, because I would go to therapy as a young person. I would say, you know, when I grow up, I'm going to be friends with these people. And the therapist really thought I was just out of my mind. And now I think about it, I'm like, see
0: yeah yep. clearly, clearly yeah. The, the help you were getting, whether it be the the school counselors or the writing tutors or the therapists, were all wrong. so good good for you. Yeah, <laughs> I read that you also wrote some of your correspondence about the book of poems you were working on at the time, titled "An Introduction to Death." with excerpts from life and I was talking to my dear friend Maria Popova about that and she asked me to ask you to please read one of the poems from that book if you still had it.
2: I don't I found it's a few I'm not sure that they were exactly from them but they certainly are uh, (laughs) juvenilia very much so (laughs) and that was so an introduction to death with excerpts from life was a first book that I wrote when I decided to take 10th grade off and stay in my room. And I used to smoke, I used to smoke cigarettes and I could only smoke in my room because it was forbidden anywhere. And so my room was like a giant ashtray and I would smoke like two packs of Marlboro a day, not eat and and write these poems that were so so upsetting. And that was when my mother was in graduate school and I would come out and I'd hand her in my terrible handwriting, a really upsetting poem and say, would you mind typing this for me? And then, of course, she would call the therapist and be like, oh, no, she's at it again. She's writing these really disturbing poems about harming herself and so on. But I think that was my way of telling my mother how bad I felt. And it's so awful now when I think about it in retrospect. So, yeah, I can, I'll read you. Just, this is one from about that time period. It's very short. And then I'll read you something that might be a little better. So okay. this is just called Dreaming Evil. The fastest way to rid myself of you is to kill myself. Okay, thanks. You know, wow, that was a special one. Yeah, they're all like really intense. And then I'll I'll give you two more little short ones. There's one that's very nice. So this is a pleasant one. Uh, It's called Snow. And it says, flakes I caught in the palm of my hand and carried into my mother to replace the faded doilies under the lamps in our living room. At my tea party, the white lace tablecloth melts under a cup of hot chocolate.
0: That's wonderful.
2: That's what I did as a kid. And my first writing classes I got into, I took advanced uh, poetry, graduate poetry at American University with Linda Paston because she would let me take her class.
0: And is that when you wrote The Colin Hour?
2: Well, it was also at American University, but it was in a playwriting class uh, where I wrote a play called The call Hour about... Basically, it was a, a response to when um, the fellow who shot John Lennon pulled Catcher in the Rye out of his pocket. I found that very disturbing. The whole yeah. thing is very disturbing. And I wanted to sort of write about how we shouldn't, as individuals, hang on to these literary characters and invest so much in them as sort of public figures or, and so on. So I wrote a play about a radio call-in show, and I did all this research, went, looked in Billboard Magazine in the same library and found all the radio stations and, you know, done all this stuff. And In the end, J.D. Salinger calls in and he confronts Holden Caulfield. And um, I sent the play out all over the country, thinking in a very naive way, hey, I've written a play. And it won a playwriting award. And then also Salinger's agents got wind of it. And they were like, oh, no, 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 you can't do this. And then the playwriting people were like, well, you can, because Holden Caulfield is probably a public figure. And I didn't use material from the book. And so it turned into a whole legal push-pull that was I would say very unpleasant for a 19-year-old.
0: You ended up changing the characters and and really removing the whole Catcher in the Rye aspect to the play.
2: Not really. So the funny (laughs) thing is, all I really changed was I changed the title of Catcher in the Rye to Life in the Outfield, which is so funny and so, like, youthfully naive. And then, holding Caulfield's name, we changed to, like, Harmon Christopher. But I was so tormented by the whole thing. And I was already a very shy kid. And when I won this playwriting award, no one thought that like a child had won it. They thought some, you know, 40-year-old like government worker had won it. And uh, I couldn't go to the opening night. I spent that evening, this was so me, driving around, almost like how Holden had his brother's, you know, the red hat. I had my mother's red Volvo. And I literally just spent the night driving around Washington, D.C. in my mom's Volvo while my mother and father and various aunts and uncles all went to the opening of my play and I just
0: couldn't. Oh, no. wow. You, you've written that in life as in Salinger, there is grief, a disconnect, a romantic wishing that somewhere out there, there is something else, something more, something other. And then grief comes round again. It is pointless to be so optimistic, knowing that this is it. This is what there is. Do you still feel that way? I do. I was like, when did I write that? Yes. I totally feel that
2: way. And then it's funny because the new book opens with this line, this can't happen here. And always the question is, which of the this is, is this? You know?
0: I love that. Which is the this is, is this. All of this happened. Your your first play, your other chapbooks, I guess we can call them, before you even went to college. And you eventually got your B.A. from Sarah Lawrence College, your M.F.A. from the University of Iowa's renowned Iowa's Writers' Workshop, your debut novel, Jack, was written while you were still an undergraduate student. It is about a teenager whose father reveals that he's gay. And is it true that you wrote the book to avoid actually writing a paper? Yeah,
2: totally. So I, you know, <laughs> okay, I, let's I went do something to <laughs> even harder.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> I went to something like five or six undergraduate schools. So, And I always tell my, I talk about this a lot with my students because people will look at me and think, oh, that's a very successful person. And I think yes, and there's a lot underneath that that is so painful and unpleasant and not the markers that you would identify as on your road to success. So I, you know, I think also apropos of people who are adopted, I believe that adopted people, we all do, but again, for me, adoption is sort of a heightened experience, have trouble with transition. So I would say the transition from high school Um, where I'd already dropped out once for a year, right, to write this book of poems that was really depressing, the idea of then leaving home and going off to college really landed hard on me. And I was having a lot of my own questions about my identity, which obviously I still have and all of that stuff, and started having just unbelievable panic attacks, horrible, horrible panic attacks. So I tried to go to school. I tried to go to the University of Maryland and... I sat in the student union. I read read Larry Kramer's Faggots and Ate Cheese Doodles for like a month and a half. I used all my book money and just sat there eating books and going mental and didn't tell anybody. And then finally just dropped out. And then it took me a long time to even sort of screw up the courage to do anything else. And I ultimately went to the, the American Film Institute, had a school in Washington. I did that. And then I went to the Corcoran School of Art and studied painting, which I loved, and that was wonderful, and writing with a wonderful, wacky teacher there. And then I left there, and I went to American University. You know, I applied, and I took Linda Paston's graduate creative writing course, and they were like, the only other person we let do this was Ann Beatty. (laughs) But I kept thinking, oh, God, what happens if I have to take English or English 101? I don't know how to write a paper. The only papers I wrote in high school were literally on, and I love this, in 1979, I still have them, transsexual surgery, which I researched at the National Institute of Health, and another paper about the history of the CIA. So all of the threads have been there the whole time, right?
0: Absolutely. And, um, this is who you are.
2: Totally. <laughs> exactly. And in American University, like, you're going to have to write a paper for this children's literature class. And I was like, that's going to be a problem. And I said, would it be possible for me to write a book instead of paper? And the professor said, what makes you think you can do that? And I didn't say it, but I thought, because I know I cannot write this paper. So I I wrote that book there, and then I continued when I transferred to Sarah Lawrence, because they would take all my credits from all the other schools and kind of wrap them up in a bundle that didn't have, you know, course requirements. And I went to study with um, Grace Paley at Sarah Lawrence, and she worked with me on, on sort of getting Jack
0: into shape. Your next book, published in 1990, was a collection of provocative short stories with, I think, one of the best titles of all time could almost be the subtitle of my life, The Safety of Objects, which included the story, a real doll, which is a story of a teenage boy who was in love with a Barbie doll and drugs her to have sex with her and then decapitates Ken and ejaculates into the hole where his head is. And this is the book that introduced meteor work. Um, I have the paperback here, right here, How did you respond to the press about your work being provocative or controversial or pornographic at that time? Because little did anybody know what was coming next. Sure. I know. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I think because
2: of the levels of, in a way, denial or confusion or complexity in, in my childhood, I've always been very driven to sort of truths in some way and to talking about things that people don't like to talk about. And so literally in my family, there was a day when I looked out my bedroom window and the backyard was on fire. So there was fire in the backyard, in the, in the grasses and in the trees. And I went in and said to my parents, the backyard's on fire. And they said, no, it's not. And I said, <laughs> okay. and I was like, you know, nine or something. I said, well, either you call the defi- fire department or I will be calling the fire department because the backyard is, in fact, on fire. And I think coming from that sort of background was difficult. And, and so in a way, when people will talk about the work being Uh, controversial or pushing buttons or breaking taboos. I think on the one hand, I am talking about always the things that are difficult to talk about. And that somehow is my job. If it pushes a button, then I think it must be touching a nerve. And if it's touching a nerve, it means we have that nerve. And therefore, it is part of who we are. So in the end, what I'm always and only writing about is human behavior and what compels us to do what we do and what it means to us. And beyond that. I don't set out to be provoking. I don't think, oh, let's just see how, who I can annoy today. Because the other piece of it is, in some ways, in my nutty outsider sense, I'm also very vulnerable and very, I don't want to say fragile because that's, that would be giving power to others. But I'm definitely vulnerable. So it's not like I think, oh, I just love when people don't like what I do. But I feel compelled to like, get to, to other kinds of truth. And so I can't, you know, I can't seem to not do that.
0: I I mean, as someone who actively sought out a number of your books because of the topic matter, because so few people were writing about things that had happened to me, that was enormously helpful, enormously helpful. I have a a copy, a first edition signed copy. I went to see you read of The End of Alice. Uh, You wrote that in 1996. This is a story told by a jailed pedophile in his 23rd year in a maximum security prison. He's there after brutally raping and murdering a young girl named Alice, and his correspondence from jail with a 19 year old girl who writes to him about her lust for and seduction of a 12 year old boy. The New York Times stated that the book was exhilaratingly perverse luring us into the lives of characters simultaneously repellent and seductive. And what made you decide to write about this specific subject matter? I'm sure you've been asked this question a million times, but I genuinely am curious as to what provoked that specific dynamic of this pedophile and this young girl. Sure. So...
2: In a way, the answer is really easy because living in our society and and looking at the ways in which we dealt with things like, you know, the sexual abuse of children throughout the church and all of those episodes that have come to light, the way in which when the Robert Mapplethorpe art show was up at the Corcoran, it was, you know, deemed completely morally socially reprehensible and needed to come down immediately. And then also at that same time period, Madonna published the sex book of photographs. And I kept thinking, what makes these sexy? Because I didn't think they were. So all of those conversations, and then also the fixation that we have on punishment, on differentiating ourselves from what we perceive as the other. Um, So when we have things where like a person would be sentenced to death and you'd see the vigil outside the prison, and then we get the announcement that they'd been executed... There is a sense of social relief. Well, we took care of that. And yet the big question that in the way that I often pick the least likely character to confront a complicated idea, the pedophile in The End of Alice says, if I'm in jail, why is it still happening? And so for me, it really was a question about why and how as a society do we do such a bad job dealing with this and talking about this? And that was really hard for people and still is. And, and, you know, it's funny, too, because that became one of the moments where people would say, you know, what do you do with bad reviews? And I said, there's such a thing as a good bad review. The book isn't there for you to like it. The book is there for you to talk about it and think about it. And so I don't need people to say, oh, I love that so much. Um, That actually is scary to me sometimes because I'm thinking, well, what about it do you love so much? Mm -hmm. So it's all, it's complicated, but it is. And then that book was interestingly, was used to train young psychiatrists how to deal with pedophiles because there's not a lot of treatment options and there's not a lot of success. And and so some people in that psychiatric community felt that it was a good representation, which I took as a compliment, that I somehow captured aspects of the character.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think women are much more vocal about these topics now, especially after Me Too. But in 1996, it was still seen as somehow being damaged. People felt quite a bit of shame. I know I did. This was the first time I had read anything that gave me a perspective into the mind of a pedophile. And it gave me an opportunity, almost clinically, to be able to see a different perspective. And that, you know, you've said that children will find their way to information and stories that they need to read in order to help them figure out who they are. And this is one of those books that that did—certainly it did it for me. It it helped me understand a dynamic that I was even afraid to talk about.
2: Absolutely. And I think that the dynamic, too, of both abuser and abused and questions about seduction or attraction are really, really complicated and sort of like a taboo within a taboo. And so, yes, I think that that is interesting. It's fascinating, too, that we're talking about the idea of— People, children included, and, and importantly, finding their way to the information that they need, the information that helps them figure out who they are, and also to find that they're not alone in the world. And yet we're, we're right at the cusp of an incredible moment where once again, books are being banned, mm. you know, information is being withheld from children. And that makes me very nervous and uncomfortable. Very.
0: I learned in my research that Jack, your first novel, is one of the hundred most banned books in the country. It's on the most recent list of books that politicians want to ban in all of Texas. I'm assuming that The End of Alice is there as well.
2: I've never seen The End of Alice on the list, which is so interesting to me, because I think Jack is this totally, totally sweet book about a boy trying to understand his family, trying to sort of understand himself. It's not particularly, you know, sexual in any way. It's not... uh, confrontational it's actually always on these books for you know best books for teenagers to read but yes it is one of the hundred most banned books and end of alice is never mentioned i don't know if it's just the list of we don't even mention those because i think in some ways it's somewhat out of the mainstream which is fine and i think it is the books that are in the mainstream that are familiar to people and accessible importantly are also the ones that are being most quickly banned
1: Hey y'all, it's Elise. I have another podcast to tell you about. It's called In The Making. It's an original podcast brought to you by Adobe Express. and the founder of an online education platform called I Love Creatives. And on the show, Puno shares her journey from working on the Call of Duty video game to building both a design studio and a trade school for digital design. Puno has practical advice for taking a thoughtful and iterative approach to career building. Most importantly, this show is actionable. It's about how you can take your own next step in the creative world and into the creator economy. It'll help you discover creative, intriguing people who are making a living, and it'll probably inspire you no matter what you do. I know it certainly did for me. Search for In the Making in your podcast player. My thanks to In the Making and Adobe Express for their support.
0: Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. A.M., a lot of your work is written from the male point of view, and you've often talked about how often people are surprised that you're female because your name is genderless. I also read that when two of your stories ended up in the Penguin book of gay men's fiction, you considered it a real compliment. Absolutely, So talk, talk yes. about this sort of spectrum of perspective and, and how you are able to navigate that continuum. I think for me, in some ways, that continuum probably comes from
2: uh, being adopted and replacing a dead boy who's nine or ten years older than I am. Because often my male characters, I don't want to say are that man, but they are a man who would be about nine or ten years older than me. So I think definitely a part of my soul inhabits that space in some way um, and feels very comfortable there. I also, it's interesting, and, and this... You know, I learned this in some ways from Grace Paley. So Grace was so wonderful because Grace was this ardent, ardent feminist, but she loved men. So one didn't exclude the other. And I would say, I do love men and I am fascinated by men. And so in many ways, oftentimes I'm exploring parts of the sort of inner lives of men that are not often explored in fiction, including in fiction by men, which is sort of a a deeper kind of psychological or, you know, off the record state. I've always loved, in a way, also sort of, you know, the liner notes to things. That was always the most important or best part of the record album, was it? Absolutely. Well, Where was it made? What was the studio? Who were the musicians? Who was the producer? Um, I feel like, in, in some ways, the men in my books, I'm, I'm cataloging their lives along those lines. So there's that piece of it. And, and also, I would say, everything from because my own relationship to my own identity is ever in flux in some way, right? So I, I still would say I don't have a firm sense of, oh, I am this person. So I don't, I don't have that point of view to write from, in some sense. When I wrote the memoir, it's interesting. In many ways, it's more about being found by the biological family and what I discovered about them than it is really about me, and certainly not very much about the family I grew up in, which was that piece of it was intentional. But I'm, st- I'm still a work in progress.
0: You've said that you feel you actually understand men better than women. Do you still feel that way?
2: I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if that's true anymore. I think in some ways now also having raised a daughter, I probably now have more understanding of women than I certainly did when I was younger, if that makes any sense. Um, It's all fascinating and it's so interesting just to think about on the one hand how gender and gender roles are so socially determined and and parsed out and so on. And yet we're also at this time where so many, you know, especially young people are saying, I'm just not playing that game. I don't want to, I'm not, I won't take any of those. It's really fascinating. And, and I would, I wish I would say it's liberating, but I think it's also difficult because I think in the same way that society wants to believe certain things about itself, society really wants there just to be a male and a female And every form has a mother and a father. And the idea of wrapping one's head around any, you know, alterations of that seems to be astoundingly confusing.
0: Well, it's difficult for the people that don't want to accept it. I mean, it could be difficult in coming to terms with what you believe about who you are. But I think that that's where the difficulty should lie, not with the people that have to contend with it.
2: Yes. And I think the difficulty, too, is, in you know, obviously one sense of self evolves over a, 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 an interesting period of time. But often that comes to almost like a tipping point, you know, right around puberty or right before puberty. And I think that's just such a complicated time in a young person's life anyway. So there's so many there's so many different pieces of identity. And I think, again, we somehow expect them to, to all agree with each other. And I would say, truthfully, I think it's the very rare person whose identity is all of one piece and all of one gender and all of one experience. Because certainly my experience of identity is that it is absolutely 50,000 different things all in one person every day.
0: You've written 13 books. You can only imagine, I think, how difficult it was for me to decide, well, which ones are we going to talk about today? Because I don't want to just talk about... One or the other. I want to talk about as many as possible. The only other book I want to talk to you about today before we talk about your new book, which has some of the most extraordinarily detailed characters I've read in a very long time. You get lots of perspectives from lots of different people, men, women, kids. Um, In any case, I want to talk a little bit about your memoir, The Mistress's Daughter, which was published in 2007 and and shares the story of how when you were 31 years old, your biological mother contacted your parents, their attorney, and asked if you might be in touch with her. And the attorney contacted your parents, your adoptive parents, who waited until you came home from Christmas to share the news. And you write this, Christmas 1992, I go home to Washington, D.C., We have something to tell you, my mother says. Someone is looking for you. After a lifetime spent in a virtual witness protection program, I've been exposed. I am the mistress's daughter. My birth mother was young, unmarried, and my father older with a family of his own. When I was born, a lawyer called my adoptive parents and said, Your package has arrived. The fragile... Narrative, the plot of my life has been abruptly recast. In my dreams, my birth mother is the queen of queens, and she has made a fabulous life for herself as ruler of the world, except for one missing link, me. How accurate was that assessment when you ended up meeting Ellen? Oh, not accurate at all. <laughs> no. Isn't imagination wonderful? <laughs> yeah. Fantasy. Fantasy. You learn that your birth mother, Ellen, and your birth father, a much older banker named Norman Hecht, had an affair and conceived when they conceived you when Ellen was 22. And when she realized that Norman wasn't going to live up to his promise to leave his wife and marry her, she gave you up for adoption. And 31 years later, Ellen suddenly returns expecting you to be there, waiting, in stopped time. And you write that the randomness with which she contacted the attorney has never escaped you. It was a bit like you were a package or a coat she absentmindedly left behind 31 years before. What was reuniting with her like? Well,
2: it's complicated, number one, as always. And I would say, you know, one of the things about being adopted— and we all have elements of this in our lives, but is having no control over your existence or your experience, which on the one hand, everyone's like, well, I didn't decide to be born. I mean, that's a common thing you hear children say. I will say that there's something about being brought into a family to kind of try to repair the family, even if it's not spoken, it wasn't on a job description. So you're always sort of in service. And then in some ways, the idea that, that people could come back 31 years later and again, expect for you to be welcoming and ready to see them is a whole other thing so I I tried to sort of slow the process down and have Ellen exchange a few letters with me and then ultimately we had a few phone calls and she desperately desperately wanted to see me and I had a book that was coming out and I really wasn't ready to see her and then I was giving a reading at Politics and Prose in Washington DC which is where I was giving a reading just last night and she appeared at the reading. And, it, and, and in the way, only of what can happen in, in worlds of fiction and so on, like the, the day before that or either one or two days before that, I literally stuck the newspaper in my eye and shredded my cornea. And in those days for shredded cornea, they used to put what looked like a giant maxi pad over your eye. So I had one eye that was covered completely, and the other was kind of closed, you know, in a, a kind of compassionate relationship to the first. And so I give it, I'm giving my reading through this like little pinhole of a thing And then when I finish, you know, people are coming up and talking to me. I saw her approaching and I thought, this can't happen. My mother is here. My grandmother's here. My fourth grade teacher's here. And she came up to me and said, you know, I knew who it was immediately, not because I recognized her literally, but because I could tell that this is somebody who wants something from me very badly. And I said, like, you're not supposed to be here. There are people here whose privacy I have to protect. It was really unnerving and scary. And of course, my adoptive mother also saw the whole same thing through the corner of her eye and was, you know, terrified because it's it's like it was as though I was having an affair or something. And both people turned up at the same place at the same time. And I was like, no, 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 no. This can't happen.
0: So it was intense. Ellen turns out to be a needy narcissist. Um, she calls you on Valentine's Day and upset that you didn't send her a valentine, tells you to go to the roof of your building and jump off. Yeah. How were you able to integrate this into your psyche? I don't think I was, which is probably a good sign.
2: That's the the sort of one benefit of having this happen at 31 was I already had in some measure, you know, developed in a lot of ways. Had I been younger, it would have been really, really dangerous and potentially very destructive. Because even at 31, having had a measure of success already, doing well and so on, it was completely, it was like my hard drive got crumbs in it and just ground to a halt. You know, because everything that you think about yourself or every idea you have of your identity, realizing too that identity is such a structure, it's a fiction, it's a thing we hang so much on, but it's very, very fragile. And so having that kind of pulled out from under took many, many months to even begin to kind of glue back together. But I also feel that there's a way in which a person can hold off information. So where you can resist knowing on a psychological level what you already know. And I thought I didn't want to do a really loud version of that because I thought that also would be self-destructive in some ways. So, you know, it is what it is, and it went through the cycle it went through, but it was not easy.
0: You also end up meeting your biological father and see each other sporadically over the next few years. And Norman seems to struggle with feelings of responsibility to you, push-pull kind of relationship ultimately abandons your relationship, leaving you alone to manage all of these myriad pieces of your biological heritage, which is also a significant and really interesting part of the book. And you also write about the nature of time regarding the ramification of this experience, and you state... I now understand more about the nature of stopped or fractured time, how fragments or experiences can remain trapped in a moment long past, how trauma can freeze an entire life, and how time itself can suspend, conflate, blur, so that it can be solid, liquid, gas, all in one day and then back again. Even for those of us who feel we have integrated our history, there can be fragments like shrapnel, that pushed to the surface without warning. And there, ladies and gentlemen, the definition of life.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I'm like, who wrote that? That's so good. Um, I fully believe that, but yes.
0: As you were finishing writing The Mistress' Daughter and had investigated your lineage, you came upon what you referred to as a strange piece of information. You discovered that your ancestors had owned all the land that is now Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., So my question is, really? Yeah. (laughs) Really? It's a pretty wild segue. But so, you know, when writing the
2: new book, The Unfolding, there is this thread that definitely sort of wraps around my own life a little bit. But both the character of the big guy and Megan are obsessed with George Washington. They're obsessed with history. And those are subjects that, for me, have come to be more important in more recent years. And I didn't even know that much about George Washington until I started writing it. So... As I'm finishing the book, I'm pretty much almost done. A relative I've never heard of, never met before, happens to email me and said, oh, you know, I was doing family research and I realized we're related and blah, blah, blah. And do you have this information about the family? And of course, every time I get an email like that, it just sends me down multiple rabbit holes. And, I, I, and a rabbit hole about my identity. And of course, a rabbit hole because I'm a you know reporter and a studier and I need the information. So it turns out two things. One is that Uh, one of my ancestors was married to George Washington's great-grandfather. And then when she died, her sister married George Washington's great-grandfather. And I just think, God, that's so weird. And then this same ancestor had said to me, you know, the family used to own a lot of land in Washington. I remembered that my biological father had also said the same thing. And he had about him this kind of a swagger and this kind of assumption of great privilege that I could never really figure out where it came from. And as I was doing the research, I found this information that this ancestor who came on one of the first ships from England to America and was granted land in Maryland, ultimately ended up with, you know, more than 15,000 acres of land. And among that was the land that is now Capitol Hill. And it is really all of the land that was now Capitol Hill, not just like a little piece of it or so on. And it was so long ago. He owned it, I want to say, in like 1638 with another man. It wasn't all just his. And then sold it by 1640, the rest of his share to this other guy. So, so long before it was even developed. But I thought, wow, that is so interesting. Because in a way, even as I'm writing this story, which is about sort of power and the desire to hang on to power and the relationship of, you know, racism and sexism to all these things, so I'm also thinking well, who owned the land before they owned it? Because it came from somewhere. It's not like you just randomly start owning land. But I found that truly fascinating and kind of like caught me off guard in the best of ways. Just that you you can write your way towards what some piece of your being knows about.
0: I also was wondering if, you know, back to that biological cellular level, there's some knowledge somewhere. I
2: think so. And, and the, the other second sort of crazy thread to it was that last year I also wrote... I've written two operas so far, and the one I wrote was last year for the Kennedy Center, and it's about a monument to women's suffrage. It was the only monument to women in the, the U.S. Capitol. It was given in 1920 and then put in the basement for 70 years. And so I had to write this piece that was trying to figure out how do we talk about history, how do we talk about that the one monument in the U.S. Capitol to women's suffrage is, you know, th- three white women, right? So how do you talk about everyone else's relationship to getting the vote and so on? So that was also very interesting and literally put me, you know, in the Capitol, it, the whole opera takes place in the rotunda, which, of course, then, you know, two months before the opera opens is, of course, January 6th that is all taking place in that same rotunda with that same statue there. And was like, oh, my God, this is just all so weird.
0: Well, your brand new book, The Unfolding, begins on election night, November 2008, when Barack Obama won the presidential election. And it con- your book concludes on Inauguration Day in January of 2009, when he was sworn in. One of the protagonists of the story, who you refer to as Big Guy, he loves his family, money, and country. The book begins with Big Guy utterly undone by the results of the election, and so he gathers a group of like-minded men to try and reclaim their version of the American dream. Meanwhile, as they try to build a scheme to, as you put it, disturb and disrupt, the Big Guy's wife, Charlotte, grieves a life not lived, while his 18-year-old daughter, Megan's life seems to be remaking itself as well. Why politics? Why politics? Because politics
2: is history. Politics is culture. Politics is the push and pull of who we are and who we hope to be, I think. And I really felt like something weird was happening in this country. I started this book well before Trump was elected. And I felt like not only had the American sort of political establishment lost touch with the average American, but that this— new thing which isn't really that new but dark money was starting to flow in in increasingly large amounts and it so i think part of it too is is the exponential increase in that dark money and in think tanks and institutes and ways in which one buys airtime for a narrative that may not you know may not even be true i mean it's very complicated but that that was progressively more and more disturbing to me and so i felt like i needed to kind of figure out how to talk about it. And also I felt like, you know, it's two different threads. So one thread is that I feel like when there was a previous election where I went to bed thinking Al Gore had won and I woke up and George Bush was president. I was like, I missed something while I was sleeping, which for a person who's a worrier, it's a good way to get insomnia. Like, don't turn the news off, stay awake. But that, you know, was in in a way happened because of, and I made it a person, not in the book, but in my imagination, hanging Chad, who is not a person, but a thing in Florida. And because the Republicans had control over Florida, they were able to actually claim that the presidential election. And somehow there wasn't enough of a fight for that, which is a whole other problem. But so when when Obama wins and they don't have another trick that they can pull out, this group of men becomes really disturbed. And what you begin to see is what I would describe of the fear of older white men, that they are losing power, they are losing all of the things that they took to be theirs and theirs alone, and they're gonna now have to share all that. And I think that that Obama's election unleashed a kind of racism and sexism that's always been there. I mean, we know that, but it kind of almost in some bizarre way gave it permission to surface all the more. And I think we're still progressively seeing that. So that's sort of why I chose that moment. And also because that moment was so powerful on the other side, for many of us, you know, I bought a new TV. It was my first TV since college. And I got like a yeah. bigger TV to have people over to watch. And that, that difference between people taking to the streets, celebrating the idea that we could live in a different kind of a country where many points of view, many voices could be heard and so on. And then the sheer terror that that evoked
0: in white people. I mean, that's the only way I can describe it, you know, was interesting to me. One of the most fascinating aspects of the book is how you weave these sort of fictive characters with real characters. John McCain, George Bush, Condoleezza Rice makes an appearance. And you refer to figures such as Malcolm Moose, who wrote President Eisenhower's military-industrial-complex speech in 1961, I think. And I actually quite inadvertently learned a lot about history reading your book while I was mesmerized by the plot. How much research into American political history did you have to do, or did you already know everything that you were writing about?
2: I definitely did not already know all of it. I mean, I have to say, I have progressively fallen more and more in love with history. And I would call it histories, because that's one of the big things that also is, Mm. as I like to say, in my craw, that, you know, that, that we tend to think there is an American history. And then five seconds later, if you just even look at it, you realize there are so many histories that are not included, and that's really important to me as well. But so I I did do a ton of research, and I've always been obsessed with the period that really begins with Eisenhower's speech about the rise of the military industrial complex, because that's part of how we economically got from there to here. So that's really important. And this book is, I mean, I'm glad you got all that, because it is truly rolling in history and detail and crazy, crazy facts that you just think that couldn't be real. But it is. And I wanted to sort of play that history out and unpack it, you know, in line with these fictional characters who obviously are not historical figures, but in some ways represent elements of history in the sense that one of them will come from the world of banking. One of them comes from the world of medicine and business, which was an echo of the Eisenhower 10, which were the men that Eisenhower just sent lovely letters to saying, and in case of nuclear disaster, you will be in charge of agriculture Uh, So as though, please show this letter to your nearest farmer and uh, he'll know to give you his crops. I mean, I don't know how that was really going to work, but I found all of it really interesting and wanted to work with it.
0: You've said that your biological father was a bit big guy-ish and in that sense of a large scale confidence and ownership, sense of ownership or privilege of place. Yeah. Some other familiar themes in your autobiographical writing return In the unfolding, Megan's parents lose their infant son to an illness before she's born. And then there's another big plot surprise that I don't want to give away. What made you decide to bring these themes into this book? I
2: think so many, again, so many things. On the one hand, I would say I wanted to explore some of those themes a little bit more. Um, And I still haven't really done it in terms of the sort of the law, what does it mean to me to be a replacement child or what is that experience like? I, I, at some point, maybe we'll write some more autobiographic material about that. But I wanted to explore that a bit more. Also, in my adoptive family, my father was quite politically radical. So in some ways, I have these two very, very different fathers. You know, he was a lover of Ramparts magazine and, you know, marching on Washington. And there's a, you know, a, wonder, a wonderful little FBI file on him for his early, you know, political work and so on. And so he also had you know uh, all kinds of political books around the house, but it would be like Eldridge Cleaver's Soul on Ice, which I have his copy of here, and the report of the Warren Commission, and all kinds of early nutball books about conspiracy theories and so on. So there's that juxtaposition, and and my biological father was definitely sort of a big guy in Washington. That was, I mean, I didn't know, of course, that he you know the family had owned Washington, but he grew up there, he lived there. And there is a Washington within Washington, which is sort of the local people who are. can be sort of a little bit like fixers. You know, they own the parking lots, they own the land, they own the real estate, and so on. And he was definitely a part of that group of men.
0: One of the things that I love about reading an author who has a large body of work is themes mm-hmm. that pop up. When I was talking to Jacqueline Woodson about her books, I, I mentioned that the notion of air— mm-hmm comes up a lot. In your books, the notion of time comes up a lot. And Megan, the teenage daughter in The Unfolding, has an experience upon seeing the grassy knoll for the first time and her inner dialogue reminded me of how you describe time in The Mistress's Daughter when Ellen returns. And you write of Megan, the grassy knoll is an example of the disappointment Megan felt today. The grassy knoll is less of a hill or a mound and more of a bump, or at this point in time, a blip. Is that true, or has the scale of things changed? Does a place compact and get smaller over time? Does history shrink? What do you think now? Does history shrink, Anne? I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, maybe it shrinks
2: and then expands again, almost like an accordion. Uh, or maybe there's some like mm. weird hurdy-gurdy guy playing. You know, some, there's all these people now who say that we're living in like, you know, some weird alternate game. I mean, who knows, right? But do, what do I really think? Mm. Does history shrink? Well, I think history compacts probably just in the virtue of the way in which when we look back through our lives, it's hard to hold things that are current at the same, almost like your your hard drive, you know, at the same volume and space as things that happened long ago. So they do compact. And that bit about the grassy knoll is it's funny cuz so much you know what I write is really fiction but that did happen to me. I went to see the grassy knoll when I was in Dallas giving a reading and I had a Russian driver, you know, taking me to the airport who said you won't go around again and I kept going around cuz I kept thinking it's going to make sense to me and then finally after we went like 3 or 4 times the guy was like okay this is not you know lady I'm not spending the day driving <laughs> in circles but that does interest me a lot. Does history shrink? I'm not sure. Trauma, I think what's interesting is I don't think trauma shrinks. I think that's one of the problems with it is that Mm. as we grow up, much of our history compacts except for our trauma, which stays same size no matter what.
0: One of the other aspects of your book that I loved was the rat-tat-tat kind of almost like Girl Friday dialogue. It's so brilliant. And there's this one bit that I wanted to read, not only for the dialogue, but also because of the content of what the gentlemen are saying. So I'm just going to pick something up from right in the middle of the book. And actually, it's more towards the end of the book and and share it with our listeners and ask you about it. Bo says, is that manipulating the mainstream media is a cheap and effective way to get the message out? Exactly, the general says, a program I call the half-baked potato restuffed, meaning that you eat it because you like the way it tastes, but you have no idea what you're eating. And then there's just shit we make up, Metzger says, science fiction, pure fantasy. How do you know the difference, Kissick asks. Difference, the general asks, what Difference. Between what is real and what is made up. I'm not sure that I should be the one to break this to you, the general says, but it doesn't fucking matter. The only important thing is that people believe what you're telling them. Yeah. And that brings us so to good. Right, and
2: that brings us to where we are now. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I
0: find that terrifying. <laughs> it is terrifying. You started this yeah. book ten years ago. It's an alternative yes. history that you've somehow predicted <laughs> as the present. Um Welcome to my life. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yes. There's something else that you yeah. wrote in the book that really paused me and really stopped me and kind of gave me chills. And you said one of the characters is speaking to the other another character and says, trust me, there are people who already know if Obama will go to terms. That's who I want to be in business with. The people who know the judge says. Do you believe that? Do you believe that at that time people knew?
2: In some ways, yeah, sure. I mean, there are everything from I mean. True mathematics and statisticians and people that can look at you know political information and in curves and I would say Obama going two terms is less of a mystery than what's going to happen next, right? Because we're we're yeah. we, we at that point we're still in two thousand and eight. There was a reality that we all kind of agreed upon, and now we're living in a moment where there really is this thing called alternative facts, mm. and there is also a kind of an alternative, literally. There is an alternative political reality that doesn't follow the rules, the laws, any of the terms of free and fair voting, for example, or classified materials. I mean, any of the things that in some ways weren't legislated because it never occurred to anyone that someone would walk away with that stuff. And so I think we're a little bit in a much more dangerous territory. And in a way, I would say, If there were people who knew that about Obama, are there people who know what will happen next with the Republican Party? Nope, there aren't.
0: Well, that's what it seems like this cabal of men are trying to do, write that future. You write, the ancient Chinese general Sun Tzu believed the indirect approach to war was about deception and uncertainty, creating confusion, dividing allies. What you're playing is the long game that evolves under the radar, the general says, the general, the scariest person in this book is the general. Your politics are the pretty much the opposite of these gentlemen, how did it feel to be creating this dialogue, which in some ways is really reprehensible, but also really accurate about what so many people believe?
2: I guess it's a, it's a really, really good question. No one's asked me anything like that. I feel like I was giving voice and identifying who's, who's having this conversation and what is being said and in a way bringing forward what is just underneath the surface. And absolutely, these things are happening, and absolutely, these conversations are
0: being had, and probably not by the people you wish were having them. I'm sure of that. I know it. The ending is a real surprise. I don't want to give it away for anybody. Did it surprise you when you came up with the idea?
2: I think, to me, the thing that's interesting about the ending, and I'm trying to figure out how to talk about it without giving anything away. Yeah, yeah, me too. Is... I know, a lot of people say to me, how am I supposed to like these people? And I think, I don't want to talk about like because that's way too contemporary. And if we have to like things, then we're never going to understand anything. But how do I feel for people? I do feel for all people, regardless of if I like them. um, I really am desperate to understand people that I don't understand because I feel like I don't want to just see my own reflection. I want to actually understand other people. So there's that piece of it. But there's a moment where the big guy begins to realize that he's kind of a jerk and maybe more than a jerk, maybe more dangerous than a jerk. And what does that mean? Because he doesn't see himself that way. And therefore it would have to, he'd have to have a reckoning within himself. So there's that piece. And I think he thinks that now that he's sort of woken up a bit and he realizes he's got this great daughter that she probably will follow in his footsteps, that she will, she's had this moment, she's voted, she's coming to her own a little bit And she's going to be just like him. And I think the fact that he thinks that also tells us he's still so incredibly oblivious and sort of self-focused that he doesn't realize that she she may go and be something amazing, but it probably won't be exactly what he thinks.
0: That alternative... Is what I kind of hope for. But again, we want people to read the book and find well, out for ex- themselves. Exactly. It, it's a page turner. Right. It really is a page turner. And I
2: will just say, when I got to that, I was a little bit like, I literally, you know, every now and then as a writer, you you write something, you think something, and you get like a sort of a tingly feeling. You're like, oh my God. And I was like, wow,
0: that to me was really cool. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, speaking of people becoming different people, my last question today is one I'm super curious about. I read that the living person you'd most like to meet is Mick Jagger. Oh, I love Mick Jagger. <laughs> um,
2: I'm not sure who I love more. I love the Rolling Stones. That was the thing I always... There were two things I wanted to be. One was a doctor, and I used to go to that National Medical Library and read every night. And then I really wanted to be in the Rolling Stones. And the problem was very low vacancies and no girls, right? Right. <laughs> so I I totally love Mick Jagger I also really Keith Richards has the same birthday as me I think we have a lot in common and I was, was a drummer and so Charlie Watts was also my guy so mm-hmm.
0: you know the whole band well there's still time you know, I know they need a new I drummer know. I know I know and thank you so much for making so much work that matters thank you for writing this really important breathtakingly good book and thank you for joining me today on Design Matters
2: thank you so much for having me
0: A.M. Holmes' latest novel is titled The Unfolding, and you can read more about all of her extraordinary work on her website, amholmesbooks.com. This is the 18th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
1: Design Matters is produced for the TED Audio Collective
2: by Curtis Fox Productions. The interviews are usually recorded at the School of Visual Arts
1: in New York City, the first and longest running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Emily Weiland.